Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. John. As he walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's work might be revealed in him. We must work the works of the one who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. He spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. And the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask him, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, It is he. Others were saying, No, but it is someone like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. But they kept asking him, that, Well, then how are your eyes open? He answered, The man called Jesus, made mud, spread it on my eyes, said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. Then I went, washed, and received my sight. And they said to him, Well, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been born blind. And now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud, opened his eyes. And then the Pharisees also began to ask him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and then I washed and now I can see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not observe the Sabbath. But others said, well, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about, about him? It was your eyes he opened. And he said, well, he's a prophet. Well, the Jews did not believe that he had been born blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? Well, how then does he see now? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but we don't know how it is he's now able to see, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He can speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, Well, I don't know whether he's a sinner. One thing I do know is that though I was born blind, now I see. And they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, 
I told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Well, then they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. The man answered, Well, here's an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but God does listen to one who worships God and obeys God's will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, well, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born entirely in sins, and you're going to teach us? And they drove him out. Jesus heard that they'd driven him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And and who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said to him, You've seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see and those who do not, who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, surely we're not blind, are we? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Sometime in the summer of 2000, after an extended period of me dragging around the house like my dog had died, Susan sat me down and she said, what is wrong with you? And I said, well, I don't know exactly. She said, obviously something's wrong. I said, well, I know, but I I don't have any idea what it is. And she said, well, you should call Dr. Barry. I, I think you're mild to moderately depressed. Well, I guess that would make sense. So I called my doctor whose parents were members of the church I served. And when he answered, he said, I I said to him, I said, hey, doc, I I, I think I might have a problem. And he said, well, what's going on? I said, well, Susan told me to call you. I've been pretty down lately. Mm, How long? Well, maybe, I don't know, a couple months, maybe. Well, why didn't you say something earlier? And of course, I said what just about everybody says after the doctor asks, look, if you got a, an elbow growing out of the side of your head, why didn't you come to me earlier? And I said, well, I figured it would go away. But it didn't go away, did it? So what's going on, preacher? I said, well, you know, uh, Susan's a nurse, and she thinks I might be mild to moderately depressed. And he sounded a bit relieved, like he was worried that I was about to tell him I had a an third elbow grown out of the side of my head or something. So he, he chuckled, and he, and, and he said, well, Reverend, let me ask you something. And I said, what's that? 
He said, well, how many preachers do you know who aren't mild to moderately depressed? That's a fair point. So he prescribed me an antidepressant, and in a few weeks I felt, you know, like myself again. But unfortunately, antidepressants aren't like athlete's foot spray. Generally speaking, you don't cure it with a few applications and then just let them sit in your medicine cabinet until the next time. Now, how do I know this? <laughs> well, after we moved to Louisville, I thought I didn't need them anymore. I didn't want to be on medication any longer than necessary, so I, you know, I just quit taking my antidepressants. And then after only a few days and some old moods setting back in, Susan asked me, what's going on? And I, she said, you're, you're, you're angry all the time. Well, I hadn't really noticed anything until she said something. And I said, wow, well, you know, now that you mention it, I, I have been feeling really angry, and I, and I really don't have any idea why. And she said, well, did you change anything? I said, well, nothing I can think of. I mean, the only thing different over the past week or so, I, I stopped taking my antidepressant, but I mean, I don't feel depressed, so I don't think that can be it. She insisted that I see the doctor again. There's a new uh, Louisville doctor at this time, because we'd moved, and I told him what was going on, how I was just really angry all the time. The only thing being different was that I'd, you know, I'd, I'd stopped taking my medication, and he said, well, there you go. This is because you stopped taking your medication. But I thought that medication was to help me with depression, you know, like being sad. And the doctor said, well, it is, but depression is more than just that. It can manifest in several forms. Unprovoked anger is one of them. Hmm. Listen, he said, some people only need antidepressants for specific episodes. And when things have settled down, they can, they can go back off them. But there are other people who have to take medication for the rest of their lives. Apparently, you're one of them. Oh, lovely. So now I take my medication so that I won't act like a petulant kid or something decidedly worse. Now, I feel better about the whole thing now, it's, so it's, it's not a plea for your concern. In fact, I'm a little embarrassed to bring, be bringing it up at all. I mean, I've told people about it, sure, but I'm, I'm kind of hesitant to speak about it publicly in front of you all. Why, you may ask, should I be embarrassed to speak about the fact that my body's no longer functioning in the way it was meant to function? And I, well, I've been thinking about that. I mean, what is this embarrassment about anyway? Well, for one thing, I, I, I guess parishioners, though they will cop to the notion of their pastor being a human being with, you know, problems like everybody else, usually feel uncomfortable thinking too much about those problems. I mean, it's like the fact that people are aware that presumably their parents have a love life, but they would just really rather not dwell on it too much if it's all the same to you. So part of the reason I'm embarrassed and uneasy speaking publicly about my frailties is that I'm aware of that reality and that it makes some people uncomfortable. Thanks. We know it's true, but let's just don't talk about it anymore. But then I thought, you know, 
that might just be a way of projecting my insecurities onto you. I mean, you're kind, compassionate people who deal with more profound problems than your pastor's mental health issues. I mean, you're likely fully capable of handling it, and I'm just not giving you enough credit. Okay, so having thought through my reluctance this far, what else could account for the fact that I've been reluctant to say anything about my depression? Well, I'm something of a shy and private person, as I've said to you before. And of course, if it's someone I care about or a group of someones I care about and they're being threatened, I can be fiercely protective. However, it's about me and I feel really threatened, I tend to keep it to myself. But again, I thought, well, that's also kind of an excuse, isn't it? Because I speak openly, loudly, and regularly about our fundamental need for a community built on trust, even when it's difficult, especially when it's difficult. And I you know, get after people, well, a little anyway, for holding back, for not sharing so that we can help. I mean, how strong can a community be if people are still convinced that we need to give to one another, but seem just as privately convinced that receiving those same gifts is some sort of character deficiency? I mean, for many of us, giving is almost always easier than receiving. But being a part of a community requires that all of us not only give to one another, but occasionally agree that it is a good thing for others to give to us. All right, so fine. You, you, you can handle my imperfections, and, and I need your help to live in the face of them, but why do I feel so embarrassed about saying out loud that I struggle with depression? Well, the truth is, I'm embarrassed to tell anybody about this because... It feels like I'm a failure at my own mental health. Like the fact that I suffer from this stupid thing is a result of my poorly formed character. What I perceive as this internal flaw, however, is perhaps somewhat overblown in my own mind. I mean, I guess I know that. I mean, I know mental health issues are much more prevalent than we like to admit. And thankfully, our culture has come a long way in recognizing that mental health is as much a bodily, physical illness as hypertension or diabetes. But at least for people of my generation and older, admitting you have a mental health issue still feels like something completely different, something you should maybe just keep to yourself. It's too much stigma. So, so, I mean, I know all this stuff in my head, right? But the fact is, I still have a difficult time coming to terms with this feeling that somehow I'm defective. That the reason I struggle with this is because I'm weak. So the way I experience having depression, and even though I know it's not true, is somehow deeply rooted in my own sense of moral failure. Did you ever feel that way about your own life? You have an addiction. You always seem to be living paycheck to paycheck. Your kid's always in trouble with the daycare staff. You're sure your grandkids like their other grandparents more than you. 
your cholesterol is out of control, and your 1978 seafoam green Chevette has bald tires and a hole in the floorboard. But it's not just that these things are true, it's that they're true for you because somehow you are deeply flawed. These moral deficiencies are what many of us grew up calling sin. Something is broken in us or in our lives, something that we may actually have very little control over, that makes us unlovable somehow to God or, or to one another or even to ourselves. That, that, that's the blind man in our gospel this morning. As our story opens, Jesus and the gang are out burning up the roads when they happen to see a man blind uh, from birth. Now notice that the first thing the disciples ask Jesus isn't, look at this poor guy. I mean, how can we help? Can we, can, can we do anything to make his life a little bit more livable? No, what's the first thing they ask? Well, the first thing that pops into their heads upon seeing this guy stricken with blindness from the womb is, okay, so who sinned? This man or his parents? In other words, the first thing they want to know upon seeing this guy's problem is, all right, whose fault is it that he finds himself in this awful situation? And of course, the immediate assumption is that somebody's goofed up somewhere along the line to put this poor guy in this situation. And Jesus just shakes his head and he said, look, you knuckleheads, you're, you're just missing the point. His being born blind doesn't indicate a lack of character, either on his part or his folks' part. And then Jesus spits in the dirt, makes a little mud, spreads it on the guy's eyes, tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, and voila! No more blindness. Afterward, the Pharisees show up on the scene and see that the guy has been healed of his congenital blindness, which is fine, of course, apart from the fact that the healing was done on the Sabbath. The Pharisees contend that making mud and healing on the Sabbath is a big theological no-no. So they immediately start throwing the whole sinner epithet in Jesus' direction. Now, everybody in the story, apart from Jesus and the man born blind, are especially keen to figure out where to lay the blame for this. I mean, they all want to get to the bottom of who's doing all this sinning. But see, Jesus isn't concerned with rooting out a target to blame, except when it comes to the problem of people who are more concerned with rooting out a target to blame than in actually doing something. Jesus says that some blindness is nobody's fault and isn't really the result of any sin. But some blindness is chosen. And that kind of blindness is sinful. The kind of blindness Jesus is taking a crack at is this particular kind of blindness that expresses itself in endless preoccupation about extraneous things like who chose chartreuse paint for the family room while the rest of the house is burning down. I've witnessed an increasingly heavy-handed pursuit of this kind of moral purity 
the scrutiny of which I suspect none of us can really withstand. In fact, if our gospel this morning is anything like right, not even Jesus can satisfy this kind of hypercritical self-righteousness. Something's wrong. Clearly, it's somebody's fault. So there's got to be a, a, more, a personal moral defect somewhere in the middle of it, doesn't there? Now, look, I want to be clear. I'm, I'm not saying that there's no such thing as personal moral defects uh, or that people don't make bad choices that leave them vulnerable to some of the problems that they struggle with. I mean, they do, obviously. I know some of y'all. But turns out, you can even be indicted and arrested for some sins. What about all those people who, through no fault of their own, find themselves on the, the disadvantaged end of the spectrum? I mean, what does it say about our politics that some people are more worried about the moral deficiencies of the disadvantaged than trying to figure out a constructive way to undisadvantage them? I mean, plenty of people, some of our politicians in the Kentucky legislature, for example, are convinced that a young transgender girl playing on her first-year field hockey team is a national crisis, while the bullying that that girl endures and the depression and suicide that often accompany it are not really, they're non-issues. If we start from the premise that being poor, having no health care, being a single parent, working for a minimum wage, being homeless, being LGBTQ, or a refugee, or a Muslim, or an undocumented worker, that all of these are somehow a result of a series of bad choices, then that makes everything easier, doesn't it? I mean, if people make poor decisions, then the responsibility for addressing the bad outcomes falls squarely on them, which is to say, not on us. Looking at the difficult state of people's lives as a character defect relieves us of any responsibility for asking ourselves how it is that we participate in a system that continues to produce poor single parents on minimum wage with no health insurance. I mean, if it's, if it's just a series of appalling uh, choices that I disagree with, well, then they have to fix their problems themselves, not me. It's not us, it's them. That's a more palatable take on society for many people, but it's one I imagine that Jesus would take issue with. That's my principal objection to the, 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 the now dead healthcare reform. It, it scrambled healthcare reform. It scrambled sort of desperately for ways to soothe people's consciences by implying that. We shouldn't feel responsibility to help other people find adequate health care because, I mean, well, it's, it's their fault for not having it in the first place. You know, if, 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 if they were so concerned about that, they should have gotten health care or gotten, you know, born to better parents or, or gotten better jobs or something. But this is church, so let's just be honest. Allowing millions of people to live without health care should pose a problem to people who follow a guy who spent a great deal of his ministry roving about the countryside dispensing free health care to people who didn't deserve it. 
I mean, just ask the man born blind in our text for this morning. Being born blind is the definition of a pre-existing condition. But according to Jesus, it should never be a pretext for finding an excuse for why helping that person to find healing is somehow wrong. According to today's gospel lesson, if you're more concerned about who doesn't deserve help than in actually helping, well, I hate to be the bearer of bad tidings, but Jesus has a fundamental problem with how you view the world. I mean, you can talk about having compassion for the most vulnerable, but if if you spend more time worrying about who should be blamed for their vulnerability than finding ways to protect them, well, Jesus is just going to turn out to be something of a disappointment for you. If you care more about rooting out sin than figuring out how to offer healing, whatever it is you're doing, maybe it doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. Look, I didn't write the book. I'm just telling you what's in it. So Jesus goes out looking, trying to be present in healing ways to those whom society would rather just sort of go away. And he gets down in the dirt and muck of life to embody the love that he said is breaking in on us in God's new reign. He views people through a lens that the rest of the world just cannot understand. And we who are his followers are now freed up to see those same people, to see ourselves, not through our own filters, but through Jesus' eyes. And that's just about the best news there is, right? What's your problem? I mean, I suspect you've got plenty of them tucked away in locked cupboards that only you have a key to. But the thing is, everybody has those same cupboards. And the politicians killed Jesus for caring too much about them. Which is why he's counting on us. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.